Now, this probably won't surprise you, but growing up the oldest of five boys, we didn't talk a lot about childbirth in my house. In fact, I never thought about childbirth until it came time for my wife and I to have our first child, Avery. It was December 2002, and boy, were my eyes opened. I had never witnessed anything so extraordinary. And I really, I'm not overselling this. Like this was life-changing. Something so strenuous, so painful, so raw, and yet incredibly beautiful. I had already had a lot of respect for my wife, but after she gave birth to our first child, my respect for her went through the roof. (laughs) When a child comes into the world, it is this perfect paradox of struggle and strength. It is the unlikely collision of joy and suffering. No wonder then why the Christmas story centers around childbirth, something so human yet somehow miraculous, glory in a manger. So I want to read Luke 2, starting with verses 1 through 7. As I read, though, I'm going to ask you to do something. I want you to try to imagine that you're reading this for the very first time, and you don't know anything about Joseph or Mary or their baby other than what you read in these, in these words, okay? It's hard to do, but just try to read this for the first time. Luke 2, 1 through 7, here's what it says. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or taxed. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, if you were reading Luke 2, 1 through 7, with no prior knowledge, it seems like an ordinary family doing what all ordinary families are doing at this time. The the paragraph I just read is so earthy. It's, it's so human, right down to paying taxes and having babies. In fact, if there's any, anything true about this family, they might seem less than ordinary. I mean, look, they can't even find a room in the inn. They, uh, their marriage baby timeline seems a little sketchy. And so if you bumped into them in the Bethlehem Inn that evening... Uh, you would have no idea that they are carrying the whole hope for the human race. I want to move into verse 8, and I want you to see this continuation of earthly humility. So look at Luke 2, 8. We're just going to read that verse, Luke 2, 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. So here we have shepherds. A lot of you know that sheep herding was, was a humble profession. Most scholars agree that shepherds were looked down upon. They were considered outcasts. Uh, They were viewed as ceremonially ceremonially unclean. Actually, their testimony wasn't even allowed in court because they weren't trusted. They had this um, persona of uh, kind of a sordid reputation for thievery. 
And so people didn't trust shepherds. They're kind of on the outskirts of society. So here we have a group of people on the outskirts of society, on the outskirts of the city as, as well. And for them, it's just another night shift. It's just another night doing their job. They don't expect what is to come. And so we come to verse 9, and all of a sudden, we move from earthly humility to heavenly glory. So look at Luke 2 and read verse 9 with me. Here's what it says. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So now all of a sudden, we've gone from what seems really ordinary, kind of earthly humility into heavenly glory. We have a messenger from God. It might have been Gabriel. We don't know. But for sure, it is this uh, glorious angel. And this angel is radiating light and glory from heaven. It's important to note that the glory that this angel had was not of himself or of itself. It was the glory of the Lord, it says. And so really, this is the Shekinah glory that we read about in the Old Testament when man is in the presence of of God. You can think back to Moses in the burning bush. You can think about the pillar of fire that guided the Israelites. It's this glory of God shown in light, this glory light. Now, it's an external display of the internal worth that God has. Because you and I can't see God with our, our, our eyes, our human eyes. And so God, throughout redemptive history, often revealed himself to us and to our senses, to people through light. And so remember how Moses just glimpses the backside glory of the Lord and his face shines, right? This is what happens. And it's understandable then that the shepherds are filled with great fear. Put yourself in their place. It's quiet. It's dark. If you've ever worked night shift, like you're trying to keep your eyes open. <laughs> and all of a sudden, bam, you know, this glory light just fills the sky, and it fills their, their eyes, and, and they're overwhelmed. Verse 9 explodes into an, very, uh, an otherwise very mundane scene. So I want to read on. Let's look at verses 10 through 14. Uh, follow along here. Verse 10 says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So one angel becomes thousands of angels, filling every nook and cranny of the sky. Can you imagine this worship service? All of these angels filling the sky, light everywhere, and they're shouting. What are they shouting? Glory to God in the highest. Highest is another word for heaven. Glory to God in the heavens. God is regularly praised in heaven. He's glorified in heaven. This is where the angels have come from, and they speak of what they know. God receives glory in the highest nonstop. There's good reason to believe that there are angels whose only job is to just praise and worship God. Praise and worship is always happening in heaven, regardless of whether we're worshiping here on earth. 
And so let's stop for a moment and just recognize that our God is worthy of worship all of the time, 24 hours a day, night shift, day shift, all of the time, even when we don't see angels or Shekinah glory, even when life is really difficult, even when we feel very far from God. And maybe this morning you feel a lot like the shepherds. You're not respected by very many. You feel on the outskirts of society, or maybe you just feel betrayed by some of the people that are close to you, rejected by those around you. This Christmas, I want you to see in this text that God meets you right where you are, right in the midst of your struggle and your shame, and he shines the light on Jesus. That's what he does. Jesus, who's worthy of our praise, we're invited to worship him, the angels already are. The host of angels in Luke 2 reminds us that we can't worship Jesus too much. I mean, he deserves thousands upon thousands of angels. And so it reasons that he deserves our whole life, everything we can give him. He deserves more than half-hearted obedience or worship. Now, I find this collision of angels and shepherds to be the perfect backdrop for the incarnation. And that word incarnation is the word we use to refer to the enfleshment of the second person of the Trinity, God, the Son, in human form. Divinity fused with humanity so that neither one of those are compromised, either his divinity or his humanity. What is the incarnation but heavenly glory colliding with earthly humility? And so God intentionally arranges a setting here on this Christmas day for such a monumental, unique moment in history. At first reading, one might think that the angels got the address wrong. Like, shouldn't they be in Herod's palace or maybe the governor's mansion of Quirinius? But they didn't get it wrong. The angels have perfect GPS. <laughs> they show up exactly where God wants them. He wants to, to reveal his incredibly gl incredible glory to a handful of humble shepherds. This is his plan. And it's fitting because this is what is happening, this miracle of heavenly glory colliding with earthly humility. It's an interesting moment for the Trinity because right now, as we read this text, this moment in history, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is not in the highest in heaven being worshiped by the angels. No, he's actually in the lowest. He's a baby born in a manger, a helpless baby lying in a manger. So let's zoom in on verse 11 and 12 a little bit. And I, I, wanna, I want us to see this collision of heaven and earth that happens when Jesus is born. So 11 and 12, let's read it again. Here's what it says. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So we saw earthly humility, then heavenly glory. Thirdly, this morning, we see heaven invading earth. We see humble glory. What a paradox between verse 11 and verse 12. Verse 11, heavenly glory. Verse 12, earthly humility. In this baby, we have extraordinary in the ordinary. Consider the titles that are used for Jesus. And let's just look at these titles. Uh, Savior which makes sense because Jesus' name literally means you know, Yahweh saves or the God, God saves, right? So Savior. He's also called Christ the Lord. Christ means Messiah or anointed one 
or king. Now, it doesn't say the Messiah of the Lord, which some might expect it to say. It says the Messiah who is Lord, Messiah the Lord. It's similar to the title in the Old Testament called Christ King that's used throughout the Old Testament, Christ King. But there is nowhere else in the Bible where Jesus is referred to by this title, Savior, who is Christ Lord. That's the literal rendering. This is very high Christology, meaning this is saying very important things about who Jesus is. The three titles, when combined, highlight the uniqueness of this baby. He's different. He's different than any other baby who's ever been born. Most of the world looks at this account as the birth of one of the great leaders in the world, one of the great teachers. But the angel's announcement does not leave that open to us. If we look at what it says, he is the only God, Savior, Christ the Lord. He's truly majestic. He is king. But this king is in the form of a helpless baby. James Edwards said this. He said, the Savior is not mighty Augustus in Rome, but an infant lying in a feed, uh, a feed trough in the city of David. We cannot allow ourselves to miss the significance of God as a baby. It's like a punch in the face of the pseudo-deism of our day. There's a lot of people who believe there's probably a God, might be a God out there somewhere, but he's not so much concerned with our daily activity. He's uninvolved. He's unmoved. He's distant. He's watching our suffering, but hey, no skin off his back. He doesn't bother himself with our pain. But when we look at the incarnation, nothing could be further from the truth. This incarnation blows that kind of thinking to smithereens. Stop for a second and just consider the swaddling cloths that Jesus is wrapped in. These are designed to wrap the baby tight, to keep him warm from the elements. If you left a baby unwrapped, exposed to the elements, uncared for, that baby will die. So here we have the king of all creation, in fact, the creator himself, who holds the universe tightly, who guards and keeps all that he has made, himself held tight, sustained by cloths and by the love of a mother. This is God identifying with our helplessness. This is God identifying with your helplessness. There would one day be another time that God will identify with our helplessness. The manger is a paradox in the same way that the cross is a paradox. If we would have looked into that manger, we would have seen what seems to be a helpless little baby. But my, what power was in that manger. This is the Lord of all creation, wrapped in tender infant flesh. And the same thing is true about the cross. Everyone who saw Jesus die on that cross, saw that man suffer, said that is just a helpless man. That's all that he appeared to be. But my, how much power was in the blood of Jesus Christ and is still today in the blood of Christ. We just celebrated that through communion. So we have a paradox, right? We have what seems to be helplessness, but so much power. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 8 says, uh, Paul's writing this, and Paul says, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, 
which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. The people who crucified Jesus simply didn't understand who he really was. It is this juxtaposition, heavenly glory in earthly humility, that is not only the center of the Christmas story, it's the center of the story. It's the center of the salvation story. It's the center of this whole thing. You see, you and I desperately need heaven to invade earth. We so badly long for what the angels promise in Luke 2.14, peace on earth. This world is messed up. It's difficult. And we long for heaven to invade this place that we live in. We love to throw around the term peace on earth during Christmas time. You'll see it all over the place. Um, I mean, all over the place. This, this Christmas, I saw a knitted Christmas sweater that, that had Jesus and Santa in a Volkswagen bus, and it said, peace on earth. <laughs> it's not exactly what we're talking about here. <laughs> it's also not exactly the absence of war when we think about peace. It's not political peace. You know, in this day, Caesar promised peace, the Pax Romana. But political peace won't bring the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about, that God is talking about. And I'm thankful for that because we seem to struggle with that, right? (laughs) So what kind of peace are we talking about? The angels are shouting this message about peace. Well, look at verse 14 again. Let's let's consider what kind of peace is this. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, this is a more accurate translation than peace and goodwill toward men. And it's clearer, too, for us because not every human will experience this kind of peace. It says only those with whom God is pleased, those whom he sets his favor upon, literally is what this means. So it requires the initiative of God not only to enter our universe, to enter our space and time, but also the Holy Spirit to enter into hearts. The Holy Spirit changing us from the inside out, and it starts with faith. Hebrews eleven six says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Peace comes to those whom God is pleased with, and God is pleased with those who have faith, the Bible says. Here's the thing. He promises to gift us that faith, and he gives us that grace for all who turn to Jesus. Have you received the gift of faith in Jesus? This Christmas is the perfect time to place your trust and your hope in him. Sin has created chaos and brokenness in this world, and we feel it, but God gives peace and wholeness in the person of Jesus Christ. But in order for real peace to come, our text tells us it requires the collision of heavenly glory in earthly humility. That's what's required for peace. So we've walked through Luke 2, and we've seen in the birth of Jesus earthly humility, heavenly glory, heaven invading earth, But I want to end with a a couple application points of ways that the glory of Jesus' birth should affect us. As we walk out of here and we're thinking about the glory of Jesus 
glory in a manger, how should that affect us? Here are a couple application points. First, the glory of Jesus can transform the ordinary. The glory of Jesus can transform the ordinary. How is God breaking into the ordinary of your life? Are we looking for God's veiled glory? Salvation has come, and that salvation can transform the ordinary into extraordinary. Now, if you're like me, you get into a a routine. Life becomes mundane, and you miss it, right? We'll all have some new goals in the new year, except the ones who are against that, like, no. But either way, we'll get into a rhythm and a routine pretty quickly, and, and we'll miss things. Could we be missing the incredible ways that God is working all around us? Check, this, check out this quote. The great paradox and advent of the Christmas narrative reminds us if God can show up there, he can show up anywhere. A simple conversation with somebody in the grocery store, tucking our kids into bed. Every person has an eternal soul. So what might seem like an ordinary interaction with somebody could actually be extraordinary. It could be miraculous, a moment when glory spills into a heart. The Holy Spirit moves. New life is created in someone. God shows up in the most unsuspecting places, like a manger or like a fitness gym. We have a member of local who has started to gather some of his fitness friends and have a Bible study and then work out, and it's been growing. And I love that. An ordinary place, God breaking into that place. See, that's what happens when we as the church, wherever we are, uh, share the gospel, live out the gospel, have relationships with people. Are you aware of the presence of God in the ordinary of your life? Are you seeing him working amidst the stuff? Not just when we gather here, which he shows up, but he shows up all over the place in the least expected places. Are you living awake to the Holy Spirit? What he wants to do through you brings us to another application. The glory of Jesus cannot be contained. Can't be contained. As humble and ordinary as Jesus' birth seemed, it is so cataclysmic that glory just spills into the universe. Like angels have to show up because something is happening which is amazing and is groundbreaking. And so the universe cannot contain this bright secret of the Messiah being born. And so it is with the shepherds. Once they have the truth of the Christ child, they cannot remain silent. I want to read on just a little bit further in Luke 2. So verses 15 through 18, if you follow along. Luke 2, 15 through 18. Let's see what the shepherds do. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Then look at verse 20 as well. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. How would we know the account of the angels appearing to the shepherds unless the shepherds shared it? They're compelled to spill the light of Christ into the dark world around them. 
And so it is with us. When God breaks into our hearts, when he breaks into our world and he shows us the glory of Jesus, we are compelled to share this miracle, to say if there's more than meets the eye, there's more than what you see around us. Many in our world right now are, are looking at the, the, the Christmas scene, the manger, and all they can see is humanity. They, start, they see the earthly humanity. It's, it's a little weird that a baby's in a feeding trough, and so they see that. Everyone sees that. But many haven't become aware of his glory. Many don't know that this manger scene is not just the birth of a baby, but it is the birth of the redeemer, the rescuer, the king. You and I, we have a privilege to share just how special this child is, just how special Jesus is. He's more than just a man. He's more than a great teacher. He is the son of God. He became human. And this is a miracle that's worth sharing. Who can I share the message with? Who who can you share the message with? Who must you share this miracle with? I find it interesting that God's plan is for a group of shepherds to go spread the message. I mean, wouldn't it have been more effective if the, if the angels went on tour and like went throughout the world on their angel tour and everywhere they went, they just talked about, I mean, we would look at that and say, that seems really effective, God. <laughs> just thousands of angels showing up everywhere, but that's not how he chooses to work. He chooses to work through earthly beings. God chooses to use flawed human beings with their own weaknesses and struggles to share the gospel message. Sometimes my evangelism has seemed so weak. I could point out some of my greatest hits of failed evangelism. I mean, I have three written down here. I'm just going to pick one of them. I was a high school student. I really wanted to share the gospel with people. I'd been convicted about that. And, uh, you know, my church really promoted uh, gospel tract sharing, which is one way that you can share the gospel. And so I had a tract ready, and my friend and I were waiting for our pizza to be delivered. And the pizza delivery guy rung the doorbell, and we walked down the stairs, and I opened the door, and I froze. And I didn't know what to say to him, because I wanted to share Jesus with this delivery pizza man, and I just froze, and I, and I just, I literally threw the tract at him and said, just take it. I just went like this, just take it. And I, and I walked away, and we closed the door. We went upstairs. We were eating our pizza, and he looked, my friend looks at me, Dan, he goes, just take it? Like, that's, that's what you, I'm like, man, I don't know. I just freaked out. You know, I just panicked. Um, I could think about many times in which I felt so weak. Even today, there's many times where I feel weak. But here's the thing. God has chosen us as vessels like the shepherds who he can use. Now, he can speak to God. God can speak to people any way that he wants. He can speak to them in dreams. And if he wants to fill the sky with angels, he can do it, and he will. But we are his ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5. We are the ones who can let this glory light spill out and share it with other people. We are able to embody the miracle of humanity transformed by divinity in a way that angels can't. The Bible says that angels long to look into. They, they want to understand the way gospel changes people and the way that we understand it. So I want to encourage you. God used the shepherds. He can use you. One last point of application. The glory of Jesus keeps our glory in check. Uh, Tabidi uh, says this. He says, the incarnation of the Son of God in an animal's feeding trough puts our glory-craving hearts in check. Am I seeking my glory? 
Glory comes through humility in the gospel story, in the incarnation. God's ways are not our ways. The Jesus of the manger is the Jesus of the cross. So we should not seek our glory. We should seek humility. The passage that we just read starts with glory seeking. I mean, the whole reason for a census was because Caesar wants to tally up his subjects and bask in his own glory. What he doesn't realize is his glory seeking is being hijacked by the God of all glory, getting everyone exactly where he wants them, and he's using puny Caesar to do that. So is your definition of success framed more by the world or more by the incarnation? Are we content with ordinary obedience, trusting God to bring about the extraordinary? We're sometimes so consumed with our own advancement, and we're tempted to think that God needs a little help from us. And so we seek to advance ourselves and make sure people notice us. And this isn't the way of Jesus. This isn't the incarnation. We have this extraordinary glory, but we have it in a very humble fashion. Jesus' incarnation and Jesus' life and Jesus' death teaches us that glory comes through humility. So as we approach this new year, let's allow the humility of Jesus to frame all of our goals, all of our plans, all of our aspirations, as we get ready to kick this thing off, let's just remember the incarnation. Let's remember divinity in this humble baby. Jesus is the only one worthy of glory. It's he that we worship this Christmas day. I'm going to pray. I'll ask you to join me. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this story from Luke 2. How beautiful this collision of divinity and humanity, of glory and humility, of humanness. God, we, we can't even wrap our brains around it, but we're trying to. Lord, we want to understand what this means for us. And what this means for us is that you show up in most unexpected places. You want to invade our life, invade our hearts with your glory. You want to change us. And you want us to walk in the ways of Jesus, humble. Father, I thank you so much that your plan was for God to become man, for you to be with us, Emmanuel. God, you are not a distant God. You are not an uncaring God. You are not somebody who doesn't care about our plight, who doesn't really notice much what's going on. God, you are intimately involved. You are a God who is near Right now, this morning, you are near to us. The word is here and you are near and I pray that you'd speak to each of us, God. For those of us who trust in Jesus already, I pray that this would be a refreshment that we would remember the beauty of Jesus. And Lord, perhaps there's somebody here who knows about Jesus somewhat but hasn't bowed before Jesus as king. Thank you for sending your son to be king, king over our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.